Hey, it's Tamara. In the spring of 2020, I began researching the impact of the media on trauma survivors and ultimately the impact of trauma on members of the media. It all started with a survey for survivors of homicide and traffic fatalities because, as a crime reporter, these were the survivors whose doors I had most often been knocking on. I sent that survey out to bereavement support groups across Canada and the United States. I'll never forget standing in my kitchen, feeling the buzz of my phone in my pocket, pulling it out and seeing that my very first survey response had arrived. It was from a woman named Jan. After reading her responses, I immediately called my sister, eager to shout from the rooftops what Jan had to say. Jan's life-altering experience with the media inspired a chapter in my book, The Trauma Beat, A Case for Rethinking the Business of Bad News, called The Scoop on Sensational Stories. I have learned so much from Jan, from her podcast, from her own books, and from the conversation you're about to hear. All right, let's get to it. You're listening to The Trauma Beat, hosted by me, Tamara Cherry. Check the show notes for anything that might activate your own trauma responses. And as always, like, subscribe, comment, do what you can if you like what you hear. Episode 5, My Conversation with Homicide Survivor, Jan Canty. So Jan, uh, can you just start out by introducing yourself? Sure. My name is Jan Canty. I'm a psychologist and I'm a homicide survivor and I am still working. (laughs) And I've uh, got a podcast called The Domino Effect of Murder, actually Domino Effect of Murder, for mostly other homicide survivors, but I've had guests on that are related in some way to that topic. And also a book out called The Life Divided and one hopefully on the way this year by summer Mm -hmm. called Coping with the Traumatic Death of a Loved One for both homicide and suicide survivors. And I, I want to talk a little bit about some of the stuff in your podcast uh, a little bit later in this conversation, but I will okay. just point out to anybody who's watching this that, uh, Jan, your podcast and your memoir have been such great resources for me in understanding trauma, because oh, it's something I find when I listen to conversations between survivors in particular, um, is that you ask questions that journalists wouldn't necessarily ask and because you understand. And it's just been, uh, I, I've gained so much insight. So thank you very much for your work on that. And I, um, I've recommended it. Oh yeah, I've recommended it to many people and will continue to do so. Um, okay, so before we get into the impact of the media specifically, Jan, can you tell me about what impact your husband Alan's murder had on you? Uh, It came, of course, without warning, as most homicides do. I I don't think it's an understatement to say it changed the trajectory of my life in many ways. It caused me to move from my hometown. It caused me to change my name because largely because of the media impact. I shifted careers, not fully, but I shifted from clinical work to teaching. And for about 10 years, it caused me to be far less outgoing really living my life under the radar in the closet, however you want to put it, because I was so sensitive to being under the gun. I didn't, I didn't want to be looked at. So uh, it took me a lot of time to reverse that. So it, had it not happened, my life would be very different than it is today. Absolutely. Um, Let's go back to the beginning then when we're talking about the media, because your first encounter with the media actually happened before you knew that Alan had been murdered when he was still missing. Can you tell me why you reached out 
to that first radio station and what happened after that? I reached out to the first radio station because nothing was happening. I'd reported him missing and that was the end of it. Days were passing. And of course it feels like seconds or hours when the time is going by. And uh, secondly, because I knew vaguely, I knew the people at the radio station because they were in the quote, golden tower of the Fisher building. That was their logo, which was the same building I worked in. So there was about probably 10 floors above me, but there was a sense of, congeniality between us, I guess you could say. And they hopped on it. They interrupted their broadcast and put the information out for like a bolo kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. And it was comforting to know that I wasn't the only one out there trying to find him. Mm -hmm. And then what happened from there? Because they wouldn't be the only media outlets that you would have contact with in those early days. Far from it. Those were the only people I reached out to. But as a consequence of that, I was under the microscope day and night for a long time. And it persisted for a year and a half. I did not know then the reason behind it was one of the reporters wanted to write a book. So he kept fanning the flames of it. Mm. So yeah, they showed up at my house. They showed up at my office. They followed me. They were at the funeral. They were at the medical examiner building. Everywhere I turned, I felt like I was confronted by them. And most of them were pretty rude and assertive. And uh, I felt like I was on display. It was more harmful than helpful. Mm -hmm. You had described a scene in your book about uh, when Alan was still considered missing and the media showed up at your house sort of in a group and they came in and I think it was you you went to answer a phone call and they sort of took over. Can you describe that scene if you're comfortable doing so and how that sort of attention when Alan was still considered missing, uh, made you feel? I felt like it was kind of a, a trade-off. I mean, I, I resented the abruptness of it and the fact that it was a group of them and the fact that I made it very clear I did not want my picture taken. And they did so anyway when I grabbed the phone to answer it. And they started looking around my first floor of my house. And in fact, one of them commented with a little bit of, criticism in his voice well you don't even have a tv and I said no I don't I gave it away when I was in my doctoral program so I would not be distracted by it Um, but on the other hand I knew that I needed help because the police weren't telling me anything and so I felt obligated but also resentful at the same time it was a real mixture of feelings because of their approach to me was so uh, abrupt and me and rude I I just Mm -hmm. felt like I was there for their benefit. Mm -hmm. The media coverage of Alan's case was quite sensational. Uh, From what I understand, a map was published in one of the papers showing where you lived. There was video of the crime scene. The media was constantly trying to get a hold of you, as you mentioned. Uh, What impact did it have being at the center of such a media frenzy during your time of grief? At the, at the time, what do, you, what do you remember about that? Because you were dealing with so many things in addition to this mm-hmm. horde of media. It was frightening, I felt, because I didn't even know if I was safe at that point. I didn't know what was going on. I didn't know why he'd been murdered. I didn't know who did it. Mm-hmm. And the police, I learned much later, had me followed because they weren't certain. And I felt because of the media exposure, I was even more vulnerable to harm. So that was one factor. Another factor was they were publishing 
inaccuracies and that bothered me, but I wasn't in the mindset to do anything about it. When it came to the funeral, it was so disrespectful. And I, I just felt frightened. It, it really ramped up my anger, my fear, my anxiety. And I just kept thinking, I, I wish this was over. I wish this was over. I, we were definitely not on the same page. And I, was just, I just felt exploited. Mm-hmm. You just mentioned the funeral. And that might sound crazy to people thinking that, because you didn't want the media at the funeral and they Absolutely showed up not. anyway, right? And they were, right. Inside the, they were inside the service. I think in your book, you described some of them laughing like they were there for a mm-hmm. show. Uh, you also mentioned in your survey as part of my research project and in your memoir, you described how the media was outside the morgue when you right. went to identify Alan's remains. Can you describe the scene when you walked out of the morgue and, and how that made you feel? This was an early Sunday morning, and I think they chose that in part thinking that that would help me evade the media, which it didn't. They apparently weren't allowed in the morgue because they were all on the doorstep of the morgue as I was leaving. And I was with my parents and Detective Landeros was behind me. And I, I hadn't slept in a long time, so I wasn't certainly on my best thinking wise. And I looked up and for just a split second, what I thought I saw was an old fashioned World War II machine gun turret. And and that really speaks to my state of mind more than anything else, because then I realized it's just a camera on a tripod. But I felt so frightened and so exploited that I, I didn't know what to do. I, I mean, I was I just got done seeing the head of my husband hmm. 10, 10 seconds earlier. And from that to this, and it was I hadn't even recovered from that image. And I'm being faced with all these strangers with their microphones pointed at me. And thank goodness, Detective Landeros was much more on top of things than me. And she spun me around and left me out, led me out the back of the building. But it was just traumatic. It was re-exploitation is how it felt. Like, how much worse can it get? Of course, I still had the funeral to go to. I didn't know that then. But it was, uh, it was indescribable how frightening it was and how, how vulnerable I felt because I, I was getting by on almost no sleep, no food, and it had been going on for, at that point in time, 10 days. So I was really putty in anybody's hands, which is not normally how I am. Mm-hmm. And um, it was pretty upsetting. It, was, it really turned me off to any, any further cooperation with the media. You, um, you just mentioned a couple things that have been recurring themes with many of the the homicide survivors in particular that I've worked with in my research project. And that is that you felt vulnerable and that you felt afraid. Uh, And those are very common feelings in the aftermath of a homicide, whether media is involved or not. Can you describe, I mean, because you're a psychologist, help us understand what would have been going on with your brain at that time, given that you hadn't had any sleep, you had just found out that your husband had been murdered, or even just the, the, the mindset of any homicide survivor in that aftermath, what would you like journalists to understand about what is going on there and therefore how you may react or how they may impact you? When anybody is in any trauma, whether it's homicide, survive, survive, quote, being a homicide survivor or any other kind of trauma, what happens is 
your brain shifts to a defensive mode. It's trying to keep you alive. It's trying to keep you alert and help you make split second decisions. And so what it does is simultaneously turn off things that functions within your brain that are not needed at that moment, like digestion, for example, and crank up the processes which are needed for survival, like the pupils dilate to take in more light, your hairs inside your ears, they feel tingly and it, they're becoming very erect to catch every sound. One of the other things that happens is it the oxygen is shifted in your brain away from the speech centers, which reduces your being able to being articulate. So you babble, you can't think straight, you are in an inarticulate mode. And the more a microphone is shoved in your face, the more that becomes the fact. So you're left dumbfounded and unable to express yourself. You're also, your heart's racing and any pre-existing health conditions will become exacerbated. And that's called the fight or flight or freeze mode. And it lasts for a long time, depending on your what they call pre-morbid state of mental health. You know how mm -hmm. if you had just come out of a hurricane and then you're faced with this, it's going to be even worse. Mm -hmm. um, so it's it's not the brain is not preparing you to speak with the media. The brain is not preparing you to be a instant celebrity. Your brain is trying to prepare you to survive, and it takes over without any thought, without any decision making. And it happens to experienced people, military um, uh, pilots who are about to crash. It doesn't matter. It, your brain, it's, it's just on automatic and it will do it. And it um, causes just a cascade of cha changes. I had a speaker on my podcast once, a physician who told me there is no organ system in the brain that is not affected mm. by the trauma. That's one of the great ironies I found in the media in particular in the immediate aftermath of traumatic events that the media wants you to tell your story, but you literally can't in many no. times, your brain won't let you. So what they end up getting is either misinformation or just not an ac accurate portrayal of what you are feeling or the events that happened, which I don't think any journalist would want. And from the survivor's standpoint, that's recorded and that's permanent. And when you look back on it, all you see yourself doing is babbling or being defensive. And that's a permanent record. And it just, it's so embarrassing. And it's so, it's a splice of your life you'd rather forget, let alone be highlighted. Mm -hmm. They're catching you at your worst time. Mm -hmm. and, 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 and with you, I mean, you went through that all back in the 1980s. Anybody that's going through it now, that splice of time is going to be Googleable forever if, if right. you're applying for a job in a decade or what have you. Um, how long did that sustained media coverage last for you, Jan? About a year and a half. I wouldn't say it was as intense after six months, but it was because there's, you know, there's always developments. Uh, the perpetrator in this case, the person who admitted murdering my husband, tried to escape prison so and did briefly. So that hit the media. And um, the the preliminary exam came up and then the trial. And, and so there was always something that was fanning the flames of it. His trial was quick, quick compared to most trial standards, which only occurred in uh, December, January time. I mean, the preliminary exam was mm -hmm. the December, January time frame. So that's, you know, six months after the murder. So it was very intense up to that point in time. And then, as you probably know, with every development, it ramped it up even more. And then it 
it died down. Um, and then it tapered off, but it was still there because of this reporter that wanted to write a book. So he kept, you know, a year ago today, kind of a reporting. And um, I tried to evade him as best I could. And it was ultimately my attorney who recommended I cooperate with them, which I reluctantly did. So you just said the year ago today, or maybe there's a parole hearing down the road. Describe for me what that impact is when maybe there's been a period of calm or relative calm and then the media coverage spikes again, not only in, in your own experience, but what you've heard from, from other survivors. That it throws them back into survival mode. You're trying to reestablish your life as best you can under the circumstances. And you're just maybe getting, starting to get some sleep. Maybe you're just starting to eat again. And life is developing into a new normal. It's not your old normal. And you get the feeling that, that the dust is beginning to settle and whoosh along comes this huge breeze and up it goes again. Mm -hmm. And you're back into survival mode and back to not being able to sleep back to intrusive questions from neighbors, back to looking over your shoulder, back to indigestion and teeth grinding and headaches and the whole gamut that comes with it. And it periodically occurs throughout the whole process, which is one reason why homicide survivors, generally speaking, are so offended at the word closure when it's used for trial or other purposes, because it, there is no, closure means conclusion and there is no conclusion. Mm -hmm. And I have many stories I could talk about that respect, but it goes on for decades. Mm -hmm. Tell me a little bit about that. Cause you, you touched on it at the beginning of the conversation, but it's been more than 35 years since Alan was murdered. Would you say right. that the media coverage that you experienced back then has impacted the person that you are even today? Oh, yes, definitely. When I see a news report, whether it's in Ukraine or whether it's a homicide locally of a reporter shoving somebody, a microphone in somebody's face, I just cringe. I so feel for that person or even somebody who's missing. And it's the same kind of situation because he was missing for 10 days. I, it takes me back to that. Um, also, I, it makes me question the accuracy of what I'm hearing because I know that there were inaccuracies in my reporting, I mean, reporting of me. Mm. So it makes me question the accuracy of other people's reports. And it's, it's opened my eyes to quote the paparazzi. The big difference, of course, being is that I didn't want it and I was never a celebrity in the beginning. So yeah, it has vestiges of it still remaining today. Um, but it's, it's, with time, it's, it's eased. It has. Mm -hmm. And if it wasn't, I wouldn't be talking with you. Of course. <laughs> it's interesting to hear you use the word paparazzi, because I think that most journalists who cover things like a, a daily homicide case, for example, or a traffic fatality, they would take offense to that term because the paparazzi are the people who are you know, selling photos for $10,000, $100,000 of celebrities, and they are they're hounding people. But it's interesting to me to hear you use that word to describe how the media treats trauma survivors. It's like you feel like you're being hunted in a sense. Yes, definitely. And uh, I can't tell you how many times I've hung up on people. I, mm -hmm. I had uh, a lot of people with news shows, like I had Oprah calling me. I had, I had a lot of news stations and docu, I don't know what you call them, TV radio host mm -hmm. shows and mm -hmm. TV people call me and I was, I got to the point where I'd hang up on them. I, I had to change my phone number about mm -hmm. every three weeks. It got to a point where I had to write it down to remember it. And still they found it. How? I don't know. Right. 
I wanted nothing to do with them. Yeah, mm-hmm. you had mentioned, I think, in your book that you had, you, when you mentioned this conversation, you changed your name, but you had to move, you had to leave the 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 townhouse, or was it a condo or a townhouse that you had purchased that you townhouse. really liked, right? I really did like it. It was built in the 20s. It was really cool. Oh, gosh. Um, you speak with a lot of trauma survivors, as we mentioned on your podcast, Domino Effective Murder, uh, and the topic of the media seems to come up a lot. Tell me what sort of sentiments you hear from survivors when you ask about the media, because you seem you ask you ask about it a lot, and it's probably because of your own personal experience. Everybody has yes. something to say. I've heard the gamut. I've heard the whole spectrum. I had one guy by the name of McCall who welcomed them, who cooperated with them, who found them not to be disrespectful, not in his face, and more of a support than anything. Mm-hmm. They were there at the trial. They were there, you know, to interview him at his house and so forth. And he did not find them intrusive. Uh, I don't know. That was in uh, Florida. I don't know. They have different mm-hmm. rules down there, mm-hmm. but he did not object to them. Then I had kind of a middle ground. There was another person I interviewed. She was a uh, funeral director whose niece was murdered. Mm-hmm. And the niece was murdered by her father. And she was offended by all the positive media coverage of the father. What a good father he was, even though he was the one who murdered her niece. Mm -hmm. And so when a reporter contacted her and she expressed her outrage at the biased nature of it, they said to her, well, we haven't heard anything from you. So we went with what we had. Mm -hmm. So she kind of reluctantly cooperated and felt like it helped to uh, correct the, um, the, the the bias reporting, and she took some ownership of that. Um, and then there are individuals that uh, find it abhorrent, just like I did. They uh, will focus on the negative, the gore, um, ask uh, uh, questions that you can't defend. I mean, it's like, I understand that the public has a right to know when it impacts them. You know, if there's a killer on the loose and Everybody's got to know about them for their own safety. That's one thing. But how does showing blood smears, like in my case, on the wall of where my husband was murdered, how does that get translated into protecting the public? Mm-hmm. I just think it's invasive. And I've had people say the same thing, that they showed up at the graveside and, and it's, they're outraged at it. Um, and they felt like I did, that it was just their exploitation and they were... Um, they were being exploited for ratings, mm-hmm. pure and simple. What does the term trauma-informed journalism mean to you, Jen? Oh, a fresh breeze. <laughs> <laughs> trauma-informed journalism. I, my first reaction was that's a wish. It's a hope. It's not realized. I wish that there were, and to be fully disclosing, I wish there was more trauma-informed psychologists as well. To be trauma-informed means that you get it. You understand the impact, that you're not just doing your sliver of your piece and getting it done and getting it out. But a trauma-informed reporter would be somebody who knew when to approach you, how to approach you. Um, They would know what kind of would be appropriate editing, how to word questions, and with a view towards the bigger picture, not just, I want to get this out from my deadline for ratings, but how can I use my interview of you for the benefit of society, for the benefit of other homicide survivors in the future? So it serves a true public service, not just a flash in the pan, we're here, we're gone. Because many times I've asked myself, I wonder if any of the reporters who were so 
insensitive to me. I wonder if they even think about me anymore. I wonder if they even appreciate the impact of their, their actions on me after 35 years. I would venture a guess that they do not. But I think that a trauma-informed reporter would give some thought to that. At least on occasion, think back, I wonder how so-and-so is doing, or I hope my reporting helped them more than hurt them kind of a thing. But I think they're rare. <laughs> Do you ever think back to the media coverage that you experienced and, and imagine an alternate reality where things went well with the media? Like, do you, can, you, can you envision what that would have looked like, like how it could have been a more beneficial experience for you? For me, I don't think back on it, but if I were to think on the top of my head, it would be, first of all, waiting, not getting at me when I have had no sleep and nothing to eat. So being patient, it would involve sitting down uh, with questions that I would know ahead of time what I was going to be asked. It would be setting boundaries on what would be inappropriate and not allowed to ask. It would be giving me uh, some say over the editing, which I know is asking for a lot, but I don't want to have sound bites that take it out of context. Mm -hmm. And it would be able to choose the interviewer, someone who I felt comfortable with and who gave me enough time to explain myself rather than getting me on the fly. And, you know, I understand that if you do an hour interview, a whole hour is not going to be published. I understand that. But by the same token, they shouldn't just publish little excerpts that are quick to tell the story and feed stereotypes. so that would have been nice. It never did happen. Um, and at the time, I would have said it would have been impossible. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What would your advice now be to homicide survivors who are suddenly faced with media attention as you were? I'd have several recommendations. One would be to wait. Don't talk for at least 24 to 48 hours. Get some sleep. Talk to the homicide detective. Think about your boundaries and what you do and do not want your message to be. I, so don't react. I would also recommend they take down all social media immediately. I would recommend that they put a note on their door saying, don't knock, don't call, we'll call you. And then I would encourage them to think about having a spokesperson instead of them and give them enough information that the message would be accurate and helpful, but not exploitive. And I would choose your spokesperson carefully, somebody who's articulate, one step removed from the situation, but somebody who's sensitive and and able to communicate well. Um, That way you're striking a middle ground between cooperating and not cooperating. I I did the not cooperating route. I'm not sure in the long run that was my benefit, but I didn't know I had any other options. Mm -hmm. The spokesperson piece has come up a lot from other homicide survivors as well. Why do you think it's important to have that degree of separation, to have a barrier between you and the media for somebody else to be telling your story? Well, for one thing, getting back to the physiology of trauma, you're going to be dealing with somebody who's more articulate than the than direct trauma, trauma survivor, because it's not going to impact them at the physiological level the same way mm-hmm. as it will the direct hit of the spouse or child or sibling or somebody who somebody's been murdered. The other thing too, is that somebody who is a step removed from the trauma itself is and, and you've chosen them, is probably going to be a little bit protective of you and more comfortable putting boundaries out and saying, I'm not going to comment on that mm-hmm. uh, versus yourself. You, like I said, you feel so vulnerable and you don't know your rights and your brain isn't functioning right. You'll babble through questions that later on you wish you would have just said, I don't want to talk about it. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and I think that the end product will be better for everybody because if you're dealing with somebody whose brain is functioning more normally and is and has enough details of the situation to communicate to the reporter, you're, the end product will be better. You're going to get more than babbling. You're going to get facts and you're going to get uh, complete sentences. Mm -hmm. And that's beneficial to everybody. What about people who are in professions where they are supporting victims or survivors in some way, whether they're victim advocates in the United States or victim services personnel up here in Canada or even homicide investigators. What would your advice be, Jan, for those people who are looking to support survivors with the media? I would say that the best way to support them is to make your message broad. In other words, don't just, let's say the person's name is Jones. Okay, Jones had a murder but can you speak to the issue of homicide survivors in general, homicides in general, and make it a public service in that respect? Because I think that does do more for the public than speaking about a, a particular case. And I think the risk there with dealing with a homicide survivor advocate or a homicide detective is you're going to probably get a lot, I'm guessing this, but get a lot of pushback and defensiveness, which isn't going to help anybody mm -hmm. because no comment, no comment doesn't help. I mean, I'm all for helping the public. And if that was their tone, if they could use that story, that, that news report and weave it into the story of helping the public by talking about homicide in general and the, the case of homicide survivor experiences in general, I think it would be a plus for everybody. Mm -hmm. It would help correct stereotypes. Oh yeah, yeah, I, I think that we can all benefit from everyone in the world having a, at least a basic understanding of mm -hmm. trauma and the trauma survivor's experience. Um, you, you've, you've given a lot of direct and indirect advice for journalists here, but do you have any additional advice for members of the media who are wanting to do right by survivors, who are wanting to you know, do their public service, um, but also, you know, make it a more beneficial experience for survivors? I think my first and foremost recommendation would be to not think of it as us and them. I'm a reporter, you're a crime victim, because it's an equal opportunity club, and you're welcome to join us at any moment. And I would venture a guess that once a reporter has joined the club of homicide survivors, it all looks real different. I think that's a real hazard to think in black and white terms like that, but instead realize we're all human. We're all uh, vulnerable in some way or another. We could be attending a concert. We could be driving down the freeway. You don't have to be leading a risky life to be a homicide survivor. In fact, there have been cases of news broadcasts who have been killed on air. I, I, I watched a video of that the other day. So you can join us at any time. So get into that gray mode, not black and white mode of thinking. The second thing is to realize that you're probably undertrained and that you need to be trained. And just because you have interviewed homicide or trauma survivors in general does not mean you're experienced. Don't equate the two. All that means is you've learned to do it your way. That's very different from actually being informed and you need to get adequate training if you want a quality product. If you just want to flash in the pan ratings then go about your business as you've always been about it. But if you really are trying to make a difference, if you are trying to inform the public, then you need to be trauma informed. And that is very different 
from just shoving a microphone in somebody's face early, early in the process. There's way more to it than that. I feel those words so deeply, Jan, because I interviewed trauma survivors, hundreds if not thousands of them over the span of close to 15 years. And I thought that I knew everything there was to know about mm -hmm. working with trauma survivors. And I realize now that my journey to becoming trauma-informed really only began after I left journalism and I, I set out on this journey and this research project. I've, I only wish that I would have had this knowledge in 2000 and when did I graduate journalism school? 2006, before entering the field. And I often think about what harm would have been avoided had I known what I know now before having contact with all of those victims and survivors. And that's where it belongs. I wish that journalism school would draft people like me or my people on my show to come and speak and to say, this is what it's like to be on the other end of your microphone. Mm -hmm. Think about this when you're out there. I think that would have a bigger impact on them than just quoting statistics or maybe they don't even address it at all. I don't know mm -hmm. how much training, if any, they get. But I think it belongs as part of the training process. Mm -hmm. And there's other ways to do it. They could they could do a ride around with police and watch what happens at the crime scene. They could attend funerals undercover quietly, not with their notepads out like I dealt with, but soak the experience in and realize that we're all humans and it can happen to anybody at any time. I'm not saying it's frequent. The odds are certainly against the happening, mm -hmm. but there is no barrier that makes it impossible. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It's the club that nobody wants to be a part of. Nobody signed up for. Right. Nobody aspired to. No, um, I mean, I had my nose in a book most of my life and it happened to me. Yeah. I wasn't out there, you know, hitchhiking. Yes. Yes. Um, is there anything, Jan, that you were hoping that we would touch on that we haven't gotten to yet today? Anything in your notes or anything that um, I didn't steer you towards? Uh, look, let's see. One of the impacts I think I forgot to mention that I, I don't think I mentioned this was that one of the impacts of the media intrusion into my life is it really made me very self-critical for a long time on top of feeling being in mourning on top of feeling embarrassed by the, by the way my husband was murdered. I felt very self-critical because, you know, every every time I did see a glimpse of me in the media, which was rare because I didn't cooperate much, I just looked foolish. Mm. I looked, and, and you know, here I am supposed to be a professional. I'm supposed to, you know, I have a PhD. I'm not stupid, but I look stupid. And I looked frightened because I was. And it, it just made me doubt me more than I would have otherwise did. So it was on top of the grief. And uh, it stuck with me for a long, long time to the point where I did not speak of it for 30 years. And a lot of that was the media coverage. Uh, and it took a long, long time for me to quote, come out of the closet. Mm -hmm. And when I did, I was ready, but it took a long time. And I keep wondering about how many, how many other people never reached that point. And that's why I have my show. I, I don't, I don't want to imply that I think the media intends to harm. I don't. I just don't think they think about the implications of what they do. Uh, they're on a deadline, hurry, go get this, boom, write it up and get it out. I, I don't think for them, it's it's just anything but a story. And it isn't a story. It's a reality. And I, I just would hope that through efforts like what you're doing, through 
your research group um, that you know people would take it seriously and understand that you can affect the trajectory of somebody's life by how you handle them at their weakest moments. I think that's an excellent point to end on and one that I think will make a lot of people think about their interactions, whether they are a victim service provider, an investigator, a member of the media, or just somebody passing you on the street and not knowing what you've been through. So thank you so much, Jan, for your time, for your infinite wisdom, for your memoir and for your podcast, which I will uh, link to on my website or YouTube, wherever this ends up, um, and certainly in my presentations uh, and conversations with, with anybody that I think is trying to become trauma-informed. So thank you for all that you've done. Thank you for caring enough to ask the questions. <laughs> <laughs>